A high-profile visit to Kiev by Defense Secretary Austin and Secretary of State Blinken further cemented the central role of the United States in equipping and organizing the Ukrainian war effort. And the two made it clear that peace negotiations are not on the agenda. Meanwhile, Elon Musk moves in on Twitter, French President Macron is re-elected, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but it's not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's April 26, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. If you do that this week, you'll be able to access the seminar from Monday night, if you missed it, where we continue the conversation about the new era of global politics. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Walter Smolarik and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is out today. Brian, where do you want to start today? Well, first of all, I want to thank the patrons who make this show possible. We had another monthly seminar, which we do every month for people who are subscribers to the show. Again, a great big thank you to everyone. Again, we can't keep doing independent programming like this without our listeners doing their part and showing their support. So thank you to everybody. Again, we have to start with Ukraine. There's a lot of big stories today besides Ukraine, but let's start with Ukraine. Secretary of Defense, the head of the Pentagon, General Lloyd Austin, Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, Walter, they are or have been in Kiev, and they made it clear that the goal of the United States is not to basically defend Ukraine so much as to win the war and to weaken Russia. As a matter of fact, they were explicit. I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal. U.S. wants to see Russia weakened says Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin after Ukraine visit. Ukraine is succeeding, says the subhead, according to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Walter, they're riding tall in the saddle right now. All of the crocodile tears about the death and the destruction and the suffering of Ukrainians has kind of moved into the background. That's sort of the chorus. But the main through line here is that the U.S. is looking to permanently weaken Russia. Now, People just have to wrap their head around that. Russia is not only, as a country, the biggest landmass of all countries in the world. It possesses thousands of nuclear weapons. It's a major power. And the U.S. says we have to weaken Russia so that such an aggression as the February 24th invasion of Ukraine can never, ever happen again. That means they're going for an existential diminution or weakening of Russia, perhaps going back to the 1990s period. And again, if we use the same criteria, the United States, of course, invaded Korea. It invaded Vietnam. It invaded Grenada. It invaded Panama. It invaded 
Afghanistan. It invaded Iraq twice. It bombed Libya. It destroyed the Yugoslav government. If we were to use the criteria that because of U.S. military interventions, the country must be permanently weakened, that would mean the world would have an explanation, a sufficient rationale to be endlessly at war with the United States, because obviously the United States is strong enough that it keeps doing these kind of wars, interventions, and occupations over and over and over again. Walter, I also saw front page of the Washington Post on Saturday, Ukraine has more tanks on the ground right now than Russia. So yeah, the United States is going for it. The United States actually wants to win the war. This is, in all ways, a proxy war. Ukrainians, as we've been saying over and over again, are really pawns on a geostrategic chessboard. And the U.S. wants to make sure Ukrainians do the bleeding, they do the dying, because that's not a political liability at home, as it would be. And you can see the polls make it very clear that if the United States wanted to go to war with Russia with Americans going to die, Americans going to do the bleeding, the American people would say no to it. So conveniently, and the U.S. has done this multiple times now, it's using other people to fight America's war. That's right. I mean, I think that the U.S. empire really senses a great opportunity here. I mean, amid all of this death and violence, they sense an opportunity to do things that they weren't able to do before. I mean, in one sense, there's what's going on in the battlefield, right? I mean, they want to seriously degrade the Russian military to do damage to Russia's military capacity, and in so doing, destabilize the Russian government politically, perhaps even carry out regime change inside of Russia. I mean, that's their long-term goal, of course. They also sense the opportunity to heighten the militarization of Eastern Europe. You know, for a long time, a long-standing U.S. demand has been for the European members of NATO to increase their military spending to 2% of their GDP, 2% of the size of their economy. And for a long time, there was a lot of resistance to that. But ever since the invasion began, now all of those countries are saying, yes, we'll meet the 2% spending target. There's the deployment of large numbers of NATO troops to Eastern European countries like Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which share a border with Russia. And then there's the probable enlargement of NATO in Scandinavia, with Sweden and Finland seemingly set to join the alliance. Um, Finland shares a long border with Russia as well. So, I mean, they're they're very pleased about how this war is going, I think, and they they want it to continue. I mean, that's why they continue to flood weapons into the conflict zone. Brian, let's play an audio clip. This is a set of comments made by Austin and Blinken when they were in Kiev that MSNBC played. Here's the clip. Uh, our focus uh, in the meeting was to uh, talk about those things that would enable us to win the current fight and also build for tomorrow. In terms of uh, our their ability to win, uh, the first step in winning is believing that you can win. The bottom line uh, is this. Uh, we don't know how the rest of this war will unfold, but we do know that a sovereign, independent Ukraine will be around a lot longer than Vladimir Putin's on the scene. And our support for Ukraine going forward uh, will continue. Yeah, they are very happy. They're not sad. People in the United States have to be reminded 
about how we got here. And we've said it over and over again. I'm going to state it once again very quickly. Since 2014, when the U.S. supported a coup d'etat that overthrew a government in Ukraine that supported the idea that Ukraine should be neutral and not be part of NATO, ever since the U.S. helped overthrow that elected government, the government of Viktor Yanukovych, the United States has been using Ukraine as a place where it could send more and more and more weapons. President Obama was hesitant and reluctant to go all the way. He didn't want to send the advanced weapons to Ukraine right away. He was the restraining voice within the Obama administration. But when Trump came in, and Trump did this with the full support of the Democrats, those advanced weapons started flowing into Ukraine. Biden came in and the whole team around Biden, that would be Anthony Blinken, Kurt Campbell, Jake Sullivan, the team that were at the State Department supporting the coup d'etat in 2014, they have aggressively escalated the rhetoric and the confrontation with Russia. They have been training, they, the United States government, the Pentagon, and especially during the Biden years, has accelerated not only the sending of weapons, but also training Ukrainian military, including the Azov Battalion, who are literally fascists and who were the muscle behind the 2014 coup, and that the U.S. government was making it clear to Russia that they were going to make Ukraine, if not a formal member of NATO, a de facto member and place advanced weapons all along Russia's border in Ukraine. And they knew this would provoke a response. In fact, Vladimir Putin said very openly, starting in December 2021, this is a red line. These are red lines. Come to the negotiating table. If you don't, we're not going to accept it. We will demilitarize Ukraine if you refuse to accept a demilitarized Ukraine. The U.S. government position was these are non-starter demands from Russia. And the U.S. realized that pushing Russia into the corner, that ultimately Putin would have to do something. And if they weren't going to negotiate, that something would be a military response. Then when Russia moved in, starting in February 24th, the U.S. position was very excited. We had mentioned that they were very sanguine about the invasion that they were predicting for months because they actually wanted it. The Russians did invade, and the U.S. could then end the opposition to NATO expansion, the opposition that existed in Germany. It existed in France. It existed in other parts of Western Europe in particular. And the response to Russia's military invasion was such that the U.S. not only cemented support for NATO, but was able to turn European public opinion decidedly against Russia, meaning to have a more pro-NATO orientation. And now here we have the Secretary of State and the head of the Pentagon in Kiev meeting with Zelensky, saying we're going to win the war. There's going to be an independent, sovereign Ukraine long after Vladimir Putin's gone, suggesting that regime change, as Biden made clear in the last weeks, was actually one of the objectives of the United States, meaning regime change in Russia. And now we know that the goal is to weaken Russia. And Walter, this is precisely where the U.S. was in 1991, 1992, all the way through the 1990s, when the U.S. was actively supporting Boris Yeltsin, presiding over the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, ending the Soviet Union, ending socialism. The U.S. was so in Boris Yeltsin's camp because he was the epitome of a weak Russia. 
And that's what they really want. That's what they've always wanted. Because if Russia gets back on its feet, as it did under Putin, Europe or big parts of Europe would gravitate economically, diplomatically, and even possibly militarily in the direction of Russia. This is a historical precedent, a historical pattern. I think that's what we're seeing play out. We've interviewed numerous guests on the socialist program. Vijay Prashad, journalist from Tricontinental, he made the point that in many ways, the U.S. orientation towards Russia in Ukraine, the U.S. desire to have a confrontation in Ukraine, was really an effort to cement or consolidate control by the U.S. over Europe, which has been really a principal strategic orientation since the end of World War II. Anyway, that's where we are. We can see it clearly now. The things that we've been saying for weeks are actually or should be at least, obviously true for the larger public. Yeah, Brian. Well, I I think that's a really important point because what's being presented in the media day in and day out is that Russia has essentially a plan for global domination. That first, Putin is going to attack his smaller neighbors immediately surrounding Russia, and then they'll move on to bigger and bigger parts of the world. But that that really turns reality on its head. I mean, what's really going on here is that the United States doesn't want any regional power to emerge. I mean, the same logic is at play, say, with U.S. policy towards Iran, right? I mean, Iran is a relatively large country with a relatively developed military and diversified economy. And so the U.S. military planners and strategists look at Iran and say, okay, well, they have the potential to be an independent regional power that can be a counterweight to the United States, the U.S. hegemony. And so they do everything possible to prevent that from coming to pass, that sort of regional power scenario. It's the same thing with Russia in Eastern Europe and sort of the broader Eurasian region. They don't want a regional power to develop. And then going back to that clip that we listened to, I I wanted to highlight something that Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, said. He said that Ukrainians have to believe that they can win. They have to believe that they can win. I mean, that sounds like a pretty strange thing. But when you read between the lines, when you really think about it, I think that's a highly significant comment that Lloyd Austin made. Because if you just look at it from a logical standpoint, I mean, Ukraine should want to have positive relations with Russia, right? I mean, there's a long historical connection between the two peoples, you know, ethnically, culturally, linguistically, Russia is the largest neighbor that Ukraine has. And in the context of the current war, too, I mean, not only is, of course, from a human perspective, this is devastating for Ukrainian people in terms of death and suffering. But I mean, also for Ukrainian capitalists, like this is not good for business. The economy is in tatters. The long-term investment prospects for a country that's kind of always in this frozen state of semi-war, which I think is what the U.S. military planners have in mind, that's not good for business either. And so I think that what the U.S. is doing is essentially psychologically preparing the Ukrainian population, including the Ukrainian elite, to dig in and fight for the long haul, even though that's going to be a completely awful experience for them in so many different ways. They have to believe that they can win. And that's why they're flooding billions of dollars of weapons into Ukraine. That's why they're making all of these threats and proclamations at the international stage. That's why they're 
calling Putin a war criminal and calling for regime change. It's to essentially lock in this war for the long run. I think what you're saying is so important because Lloyd Austin is in Kiev telling you, you have to believe you can win. Now, Russia is a formidable military, right? So winning isn't going to be right away. If you're going to win against Russia, that means you have to be prepared for a long war. Why is Lloyd Austin lecturing the Ukrainians and telling them you have to believe you can win? Because I believe the Ukrainians mainly want the war to end. The Ukrainians don't mainly want to win. They mainly want peace. So what the U.S. has to do is snuff out any sense that there will be a negotiated, peaceful end to this war and to convince Ukrainians that the war is going to go on. It's not going to end. Don't get your hopes up. And it's going to continue until you win. So I think it's the U.S. dictating or trying to dictate or trying to influence Ukrainian public opinion with the idea that negotiations are impossible and that the only thing that is possible as a way to end the war is to beat Russia. And that would not have been part of the thinking of Ukrainian people two months ago. Let's go to war and beat Russia. I mean, just think about that. Yeah. When you look at the facts, the fact that they're using that kind of language that they're saying you have to win, you've got to believe in yourself to win, you know, these kinds of things that they're saying while they're there. And the fact that they are there, the fact that there are U.S. officials over in Ukraine, you know, across the world, you know, intervening and interfering in the business of Ukraine and, and Russia. I mean, what else would they be there for? Right. Like they haven't helped with negotiations. I think that's an understatement. Right. Like it's not like the United States or U.S. officials have tried to bring negotiations to a productive place or tried to you know, make them happen or tried to, to get peace at all. I think it's pretty easy to see that the only reason that they would be there, given that we're hearing some of the comments they're making, is to do that, is to essentially stoke the fire and help the war where people are dying continue. And the other thing that I think is important to say in this particular moment that we've said a few times on the show that I don't think is actually something that's in the mainstream media very often is that these are brethren. These are countrymen. These are two countries that are geographically very close together. And then these are two countries with people who some of them have a national identity together or have a former national identity together when you look at the USSR and the way that that was formulated. Yeah, they were all Soviet citizens. Exactly. And even past that, a lot of them have, as we all know, a common language. A lot of people in Ukraine speak Russian. There's a lot of, you know, people who have family over in Russia, right? This is not this is not a natural thing for either Ukrainians to be fighting Russians or Russian soldiers to be fighting Ukrainians. Like this isn't to your point, I think this isn't something that would be continuing on its own. No. Let's talk about possible outcomes. Walter, the author and journalist John Ross, a, a friend, someone who's been on our podcast in the past. He's got an article on Monthly Review Online. That's MR Online. It's kind of a comprehensive article. Basically, he's trying to also make the argument that, in essence, if you think of this as a proxy war where the U.S. actually wanted and needed Russia to fire the first shot, so to speak, so that the U.S. could fight this proxy war, that the real goal is not simply to weaken Russia. It's really an effort by the U.S., to use its very powerful military forces, which are far greater than Russia or China or Russia and China combined, actually, and certainly much, much larger than their military budgets combined, that the U.S. is doing this 
in order to retain its supremacy in the world. In other words, to the extent that Russia and China rise and they become something of a block and they start to, say, provide support for Iran or for Venezuela or Cuba or, you know, countries that are trying to be independent of U.S. domination or free from it, that the United States, looking at this trend long term, sees China's growing economically, Russia's back on its feet, that ultimately the combined power of Russia and China and something of a block formation constitutes a big threat to American hegemony. And so the U.S. is actually using its military supremacy to go to war using different tactics, in this case using Ukrainians as the war material, so to speak, and the human material in war in order to carry out a proxy war against Russia. Again, Lloyd Austin now saying our goal is to weaken Russia, not to bring peace, not to end the war, to weaken Russia. Anyway, he's making the point that the target here isn't simply Russia, it's also China. And as a consequence, the outcome of what happens here will have a profound impact on the rest of the world, including China. Yeah, I mean, I think that argument makes a lot of sense. I mean, one thing that the United States has, one asset that it has at its disposal that no other country on Earth does, is this enormous military machine that they've been constructing for decades, which exists, you know, of course, not just within the borders of the United States, but at hundreds of military bases and outposts and installations all around the world. I mean, the U.S. military dwarfs all of the other countries' armed forces by a lot. And so the idea that the United States would lean more and more and more on this asset, on its military capacity as great power competition, quote unquote, as they put it, as the United States puts it, deepens. I think that makes a lot of sense. Another point that John Ross is making is that, you know, when they look at the economic competition in the world, China really has the advantage. A lot of observers say that, you know, the Chinese economy is, you know, perhaps already more crucial than the United States to the functioning of the global economy. Uh, China is this dynamically growing, developing country that's achieved, you know, not just major social strides at home, but is now increasingly looked to by countries all over the world who are trying to chart their own independent development path. And so, you know, if you're a strategist for U.S. imperialism, I, I mean, I think this argument makes a lot of sense, right? You're going to want to lean less on the power of Wall Street, essentially, because the, the economic centrality of U.S. capitalism has been waning, you know, certainly not gone, but it has been on the wane, and lean more and more heavily on the Pentagon. Yeah, the stakes here couldn't really be higher. Everybody who cares about peace actually wants the war to come to an end. We've made the argument over and over again that there is a path to a very short-term peace, meaning peace in the in an imminent sense, which is to meet Russia's legitimate security concerns that Ukraine not be the staging ground for advanced nuclear and conventional missiles that target Russia and Russians. But we now know and we can see clearly the U.S. is never, ever going to have that kind of a negotiated agreement unless the U.S. felt that it was, quote, losing the war. And I don't even think that the U.S. would do that because the U.S. is fighting the war, as John Ross is arguing, 
but it's not Americans who are dying. This is like so important. I mean, John Ross talks a little bit about the Korean War in his article. Well, the reality is that when North Korea and South Korea went to war and the North Koreans crossed the DMZ at the 38th parallel on June 25th, 1950, they had so much popular support in the South that in spite of the fact that the Sigmund Rhee dictator put into power by the U.S. after World War II, in spite of his gigantic military forces, he was a corrupt, unpopular stooge of U.S. imperialism. And the people in South Korea were largely on the side of North Korea. They considered themselves part of one Korea fighting against colonialism and occupation. And within three days, the North Korean military was at the very southern tip of South Korea, meaning they were just about to liberate and unify the entire peninsula. And then the United States, using the UN and the Soviets who exercise a veto at the Security Council, were actually boycotting the UN at that time because they were protesting about the refusal of the U.S. to seat the People's Republic of China at the UN. So in solidarity with China, they were boycotting it. The U.S. used the vacancy of the Soviet Union as a way to corral the UN. The UN authorized the invasion of Korea under the banner or flag of the United Nations rather than the U.S. And 26 nations participated. But in essence, it was a U.S. military operation. It was U.S. military led it. U.S. military forces dominated it. By 1953, the United States, and it was basically U.S. pilots, had destroyed everything in North Korea. Everything. There was not one structure taller than one story still standing. And the main complaint of U.S. pilots by December 1950 and then into January 1951 and February 1952, the main complaint of U.S. pilots was that there was nothing left to bomb. They had destroyed and devastated the whole country. But the North Koreans kept fighting. China intervened. A million Chinese troops came in on the side of North Korea. The North Koreans were determined to keep fighting and fighting and fighting as long as it took in order to liberate their country. And the U.S. couldn't win. And Truman became so unpopular. He had an approval rating of about 20% or maybe 23%. You think Biden is in bad shape, 39% approval rating? Truman's approval rating was about 25% in 1953 when he left office. But the Pentagon decided that they were going to drop nuclear bombs all over China and North Korea unless the Chinese convinced the North Koreans to stop fighting and to sign an armistice agreement, which then ultimately did happen on July 27th, 1953. But the U.S., couldn't win that war. And part of the reason, even with the witch hunt, the anti-communist witch hunt at home, even with the execution of the Rosenbergs, the American people didn't want to fight any longer in Korea. They were a restraint. The Eisenhower administration knew it had to end that war in Korea. So what the U.S. is doing to get around the political problem of Americans not wanting to fight in endless wars is to have other people fight in endless wars. And that's what we're seeing play out. And so if the U.S. is successfully able to avoid 
political opposition to the U.S. war efforts at home. If the U.S. can say to the American people, look, we're defending poor Ukraine and you, the American people, you should one, back this to the hilt. And two, we don't have to send American young men and women to fight, to kill and be killed. So there's no, you know, you're not going to do any suffering. All the suffering will be done somewhere else. If the U.S. can keep that kind of a war going, then the U.S. feels like, yeah, this is a perfect outcome. And so here we are in a situation where the U.S. is determined to win using Ukrainians. They're determined to, quote, weaken Russia. And the Putin government in Russia is determined not to lose. So then what happens? What's the outcome? One side is going to fight to win, even though it's not their people bleeding. The other side is going to fight not to lose for sure. Putin can't lose. What's the logic? The logic is escalation because of this very specific dynamic in terms of how this proxy war is playing out. And what John Ross is making the argument, it's kind of a dispassionate stepping back from the conflict and saying, if the U.S. prevails, if the U.S. is able to basically crush Russia, if the U.S. is able to carry out regime change in Russia, the U.S. will feel very emboldened and the U.S. will move directly to have this a similar confrontation with China. This would be like kind of a dress rehearsal now with China. And remember, this is official U.S. military doctrine. It, it adopted the doctrine of major power conflict as priority starting in the early part of 2018 when Trump was president. So John Ross again makes the argument that what the Pentagon is undoubtedly doing is thinking about Ukraine sort of as the point of confrontation for a proxy war with Russia. And the next point of confrontation afterwards would be Taiwan. Anyway, Walter, these are all very real scenarios. Yeah, I think those are real scenarios. I mean, especially when you consider all of the additional pressure that the United States is putting on China using the Taiwan issue in recent months. I mean, there's, you know, high profile visits by uh, senior U.S. political figures, you know, high profile U.S. political figures. Nancy Pelosi, I mean, she's, you know, third in line to be president. John Ross pointed out in his article that, you know, she was also planning on visiting Taiwan, even though she was also planning on visiting Taiwan, although she had to cancel it because of COVID. You know, these are highly provocative acts, highly provocative acts. And they're, of course, calculated and calibrated to provoke China, to anger China, and to show that the U.S. has no regard for its territorial sovereignty, the territorial integrity of its country. Add on top of these visits the revelations that U.S. Special Forces troops were operating in Taiwan, have been operating in Taiwan. There's the so-called freedom of navigation activities that the United States Navy carries out, where they sail warships through the Strait of Taiwan and do a similar thing with the flight of military aircraft. There is stepped up weapon sales to Taiwan. I mean, there's all these different pressure points that the United States has been applying. And they know that the issue of Taiwan is so central, is of such central importance to the Chinese government, that that's sort of their go-to move. The U.S., the real military strategy is not to invade China, like the U.S. strategy is not to invade Russia. The U.S. is preparing to fight a war in the South China Sea and along the Taiwan Straits. 
and that would be a war where the U.S. would exercise naval and air power against China in that part of the world such that the Chinese would at a certain point be confronted with very difficult choices. Do you escalate the war with the United States when it has prepositioned nuclear weapons all around the Pacific, all around the Pacific? Do you escalate or do you sort of lose on a tactical level, meaning you lose Taiwan, you lose some of the sovereignty over some of the waters right off of China. So the U.S. isn't planning to invade China. That they could not win. But by actually carrying out a war off of China's shores, the U.S. could basically contain China, like what the U.S. is doing with Ukraine and Russia. Basically, by fighting a war with Russia, but in Ukraine, the U.S. has encircled Russia, contained Russia, put Russia in a container, and all the rest of the world is uniting behind the United States. Now, people really have to understand, because like you're suggesting, how could you possibly think about going to war with China? I mean, even using Taiwan, which where yeah. there are a lot of people in Taiwan, but there are fewer, I did confirm, fewer people in Taiwan than, than Ukraine. But I mean, it would be slightly different, right? Where the, the U.S. would be using a lot of their naval strength, a lot of their air power strength, which I mean, the U.S. spends the most, you know, almost a trillion dollars a year on the military capabilities. They have more resources than China does. Yes. And and they're assuming that China really wants peace. So if a war starts, that's a limited war, not full out complete nuclear war, but a limited war. And that's why the U.S. is developing this new generation of nuclear weapons that are low yield weapons, meaning you could drop low-yield nuclear bombs or missiles, say, on Chinese naval destroyers, and it wouldn't be like a Hiroshima-type event. It would be limited. It would be completely annihilate the target, but it wouldn't be a signal that the U.S. is engaged in an international thermonuclear exchange. So that's why the U.S. is developing these battlefield nuclear weapons and conventional weapons that may be just as powerful. But what can they ho possibly hope to get from that? I mean, Xi Jinping isn't going to step down. Well, just like in Russia, the U.S. wants to weaken China. So the way China would ultimately be weakened in this scenario is similar to how the Soviet Union finally came apart, which are under enough pressure, divisions start to emerge within the Chinese leadership. And we know the Chinese Communist Party has had the so-called two-line struggle, many different political struggles over decades. It's natural that in a very large party, and the Communist Party of China is a very large party, it's got 90 million members, there's undoubtedly different trends, tendencies, factions. Right now, there's a presentation of unity under the leadership of Xi Jinping. But under pressure, that unity would be tested. And I think that's the real goal of the U.S., put enough pressure on the target, like the U.S. was putting so much pressure on Russia by putting advanced missiles into Ukraine and having overthrown Ukraine with a Russophobe government. That puts a lot of pressure on whoever the Russian government is. In this case, it's Putin. And then, you know, refusing to negotiate and putting more and more weapons and building sort of an encirclement, economic encirclement that in essence, sanctions and evicts the target from the world economy. Those are high stakes. And the goal of the U.S. is regime change in Russia, 
It's regime change in China. It's regime change in Cuba, in Venezuela, in Iran in 2009, by the way, when there was a mass protest movement, the so-called Green Movement against the second election of Ahmadinejad, who was more of an, had a hardline anti-U.S. position. Hillary Clinton, remember, she told Twitter, which was scheduled to take a maintenance break, don't do that because the opposition in Iran was using Twitter to coordinate protests against the Iranian government. In other words, the U.S. really is using the instrument of war making and war threats to carry out regime change everywhere, because if they can undermine the regime with outside pressure and internal division or internal protest, as they did, say, with the coup d'etat in Iran in 1953 or Guatemala in 1954 or elsewhere, then the U.S. thinks it can accomplish its objectives. When Biden came in in 2021, he immediately adopted a very hardline position against China and over Taiwan, I'm looking at an article from Reuters back in, let's see, this is April 13th, 2021, a year ago. Biden sends unofficial delegation to Taiwan in, quote, personal signal. And who are the U.S., the three-person delegation that he sent? Former U.S. Senator Chris Dodd and former Deputy Secretaries of State Richard Armitage, you remember him from the George W. Bush administration, a Republican hawkish administration, and James Steinberg headed to Taiwan on Tuesday at President Joe Biden's request and what a White House official calls a personal signal, close quote, of the president's commitment to the Chinese claimed island and its democracy. Walter, it's not a claimed territory. Taiwan is part of China. The U.S. acknowledges Taiwan as part of China. It would be like China sending a personal delegation to Hawaii, which, of course, is a lot further from the U.S. mainland than Taiwan is from the Chinese mainland, and saying, look, we're making our personal commitment from Xi Jinping to Hawaii, and don't ever let the United States think that it has sovereign control over Hawaii. It'd actually be more like them sending a delegation to Texas. In either case, if the U.S., was confronted by a foreign government sending a personal delegation of high-level people to show their commitment to the area claimed by the United States, be it Hawaii or Texas, the United States would treat that as an act of war. But that's what Biden did almost instantly after he came in to the White House. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so much of the reason that the Chinese Communist Party has legitimacy, the basis for the system of government in China is the victorious struggle against colonialism and imperialism, the struggle for China's national liberation and national sovereignty. And the key component of the Western powers strategy during the colonial period to keep China this massive society was to divide it, was to physically carve it up into different concessions, areas of influence, fiefdoms, places where compliant leaders, local leaders can be installed, right? It was carved up into a million different pieces. And so the victory of the Chinese revolution in 1949 reunified China. I mean, that's one of the core historical achievements of the Communist Party. And one of the only still-to-be-finished parts of that historic task is the reunification of Taiwan with the Chinese mainland. Taiwan was seized by the defeated side of the Chinese Civil War, the Nationalist Party, the U.S.-backed Nationalist Party. 
And it was ruled as a dictatorship by Chiang Kai-shek until his death. I mean, there's nothing democratic about it. And so the Taiwan issue is something that the United States is well aware is of existential importance to the Chinese government. And so when they want to agitate the Chinese government, when they want to provoke a reaction, that's where they're going to apply pressure. Yeah, so it's about regime change and dismemberment. You know, we played that audio clip from, well, he had been on television, but we used it as an audio clip for the purpose of this podcast. It was Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, I want to play it again, Nicole, if we have it, and just remind the audience about how the big bourgeoisie, the capitalists in government and also in the so-called private sector, how they actually look at these big geostrategic issues. Let's listen. This was back in March 9th, and he was on Fox. You've been through 40 years of market ups, downs, crises. You were a bond trader. You created BlackRock from zero. It's $9 trillion. You've seen it all. You were in the middle of the financial crisis. How would you like rate what's going on now with Russia, with inflation, with all the stuff that's going on in Europe with, mm. I, I guess, 2008 or any of the other ones? I think this is potentially much broader and, and, and bigger for the global world. Um, since 1990, the, with the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, um, the world benefited from this incredible peace dividend. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this peace dividend created opportunities for American firms worldwide. We expanded globally. Right. We, we, you know, we were able to expand and build and, and do amazing things. And as did other countries were able to do that. But also importantly, you know, we raised the standard of living for the entire world. That peace dividend is now over. And this is a big seismic change. We now have to be much more thoughtful about geopolitical issues. I think the biggest implication for the Russian invasion to Ukraine and the, and the right. response is we're all waking up to all these dependencies. Right. Europe was too dependent on Russia, oil, and gas. And every company I'm talking to right now are asking themselves, where are our other dependencies? Right. All right. Now, what I think is good to mention here is that Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, he was talking, I think you said March 9th, right? It's still in the early stage of the war. You can see the confidence that the U.S. government now has grown quite a bit. They weren't certain at first whether Russia would kind of quickly achieve its military objectives. They now believe that that's not going to happen. The Russians retreated from Kiev. Clearly, the Russians reoriented their military objectives and their military strategy and tactics. I mean, there's lots of debate about why. I don't want to get into all of that. But Fink was talking about like the era of that stage of globalization has ended. We're in this new era of politics. But that's not the point that I want to emphasize here. What the point I want to emphasize is that Fink was saying the dismemberment of the Soviet Union was a great peace dividend because U.S. corporations could go all over the place where they had been previously prohibited and they could exploit labor and resources and markets. That's what the great peace dividend was. That's the point that I want to make because I think when we understand what the U.S. strategy is toward China, including the threat of war with Taiwan or preparing for a military confrontation over Taiwan, the goal is a similar dismemberment of China. 
Why is the United States so fixated on Hong Kong, so fixated on Tibet, so fixated on Xinjiang in the West or in Taiwan? Because these are the areas of China where there are ethnic minorities, or in the case of Taiwan, an island that was under the control of the, the Gomentang, the nationalists for a long time. The U.S. can see by fomenting separatist movements that it could, in fact, dismember China. And also that that would be, as happened with the Soviet Union, the way of dislodging the Communist Party of China. When the United States was kind of okay with the Communist Party of China for a while in the 1990s during the so-called peace dividend, when they had this massive expansion of a low-wage workforce available to Western corporations, including U.S. corporations, that moved into China, paid Chinese workers a lot less than they were paying workers in Michigan. The U.S. companies made super profits, but they also expected China to fall apart then. They expected China to be dismembered under the pressure of the sort of peaceful economic invasion through foreign direct investment into China. But the Chinese government didn't fall apart. And the Chinese government, in fact, under Xi Jinping, moved to the left, made the country reaffirm its socialist aspirations, made it clear that the Chinese capitalist class that was allowed to develop after the 1978 economic reforms, that the Chinese state under the leadership of the Communist Party was going to discipline those capitalists so that the, the party was still running the state rather than the capitalists running the state. And so the U.S. has decided, look, no, we don't want China to become strong and led by communists. If it's going to be led by communists, we have to either weaken it or destroy it. And I think the dismemberment strategy, Walter, is part and parcel. And in fact, the center, the very center of U.S. strategic thinking. Let's give you the final word on this. And then I want to turn to uh, another associated issue. This is exactly what we've been talking about in terms of the new era of global politics. I mean, I think this is the dominant trend that the globalized capitalist economy, the globalized capitalist world order that took shape in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union can no longer hold up under existing international circumstances. And so new institutions, new world orders, right, you know, maybe two competing ones, one revolving around the Chinese economy and the other one, the old U.S.-dominated world order, they're being constructed. Nicole, in addition to all of the other elements of the Ukraine war, one thing that really jumps out is that how the U.S. intends to use the war as the pretext, the rationale for a very, very large expansion of the already bloated U.S. military budget. But we looked at some statistics earlier today. Arms spending globally is off the charts. Yeah, it, as of 2021, it has now surpassed $2 trillion per year. And that is including the United States, which is, of course, by far the biggest spender with $801 billion for the armed forces. But again, this is just in 2021. So based upon the fact that there wasn't a war in Ukraine that the whole world was watching in 2021, and there is in 2022, very clearly military spending is going to be increasing even more past the $2 trillion mark. 
But, you know, the funding for military has been increasing for seven consecutive years, according to data from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. And as this invasion has happened, as the war has happened in the Ukraine, many European governments have pledged to, you know, spend even more than they have been. So again, even more than the two trillion per year that is already like the highest spending ever globally on record. That was 2021. And now in 2022, Europe, many European countries have already planned on and are increasing their their spending even more. I mean, this is just a just a huge amount of resources that is going toward military. Yeah. And people should have a way of explaining and understanding what military spending really means. Military spending is in all ways, from the point of view of human society and from the point of view of the economy as it relates to human beings, nothing other than waste spending. Because the only thing that you can do with a weapon is to use it in the course of actual war, in the military confrontation. So every tank that is built that's not used in war basically is for no purpose. And if it is used for war, it's for a bad purpose. So every time we build a tank or a missile or a bomb, it either is waste spending because it's never going to be used by human beings for anything that's useful for human beings. And if it is used, it will be also used in a way to damage human beings because it will be used in war. I mean, when Marx wrote Capital in the first chapter, he identifies the characteristic features of a commodity. He said a commodity has two basic components. It has a use value, meaning it's something of use or utility to human beings. And as a consequence, human beings would want it. And secondly, it has an exchange value, which he later then explains the value or the price which fluctuates around value is based on the amount of labor time or the generally necessary labor time or average amount of labor time that's socially necessary to build a particular or create a particular commodity. So a commodity has a use value and an exchange value. Our military goods, Walter, a commodity? Yes, they are. Do they have a utility? Yes, because otherwise they wouldn't be produced and sold. But the utility is of something very unique and distinctive in human society, which is either to be not used or used for the purposes of death and destruction. So it's a commodity, but a commodity of a very special type. And we have to understand that that while in some circles, the argument is made is that it's a subsidy to capitalist corporations. It's a way of the government keeping the corporations afloat by giving them you know, contracts for weapons production, and that leads to profits and leads to all of the things that come with profit. Yes, that's true, but these are commodities of a very, very special type, and as a consequence, should be treated by society as something very awful and something very wasteful. Anyway, your thoughts? It's one of the most sickening injustices of the capitalist system that all of these unimaginable resources, unthinkably huge quantities of, of money and time and energy and know-how is directed at, at nothing else than, than killing people and causing destruction all around the world or, or threatening to kill people and cause destruction 
and therefore bully them into doing what the capitalists of this country want. It's an unbelievable, obscene waste of resources, and it could be so easily repurposed. I mean, think about all of the schools that are falling apart all across the country, or the schools that don't have enough teachers, or or don't have any librarians, or don't have any extracurricular activities, right? I mean, the, the decaying state of education in the U.S., the decaying state of infrastructure in the United States. I mean, there are tens of thousands of roads and bridges and other pieces of vital infrastructure that are completely neglected, completely neglected, not to mention the state of public transportation in cities across the country, not to mention the the state of, uh, let's say, airports or ports or other commercially important areas. I mean, all of these things are totally forgotten so that the Pentagon can get its, you know, $700 billion or $800 billion every year or a trillion dollars every year, and it just keeps going up and up and up with no end in sight, even though all of these grave social problems, essentially stemming from poverty, go completely unaddressed by the politicians who never miss an opportunity to express their unflinching support, undying loyalty to the military. For example... Rather than spending a trillion dollars on the military, the nuclear weapons, the you know accoutrement to wage war, based on some 2020 data, the government could wipe out 26.9 million people's student debt. The government could wipe out 89.3 million people's health care expenses for an entire year, could pay 666 0.7 million people's rent and mortgage payments could fix Flint's water system 18,000 times, could replace all the lead pipes in all municipalities nationwide 36 times, or could end world hunger in the whole world for a year seven times. So for seven years, that's what they could do with a trillion dollars. It's a demonstration of the both degeneration and decadence and parasitic nature of advanced capitalism, imperialism, or Lenin called it imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, or as he put it, the briefest possible definition of imperialism today would be monopoly monopoly capitalism. But these are the distinctive features, negative, destructive features of the current system. And when you think about it, you know, the argument is always made, right? That the reason capitalism is better than socialism is that it's, it lends itself to competition. And when humans can compete to become rich or richer than somebody else, that gives them incentive to work harder, to use resources more carefully, to innovate. Like that's the argument, right? And there's an element of that, which is true. Competition or the competition for survival, yes, leads to all kinds of innovation. And all the capitalist corporations are actually competing with each other for survival because you either expand and take the market or your enemy, your adversary, your competitor will. So yes, there's an element of capitalist competition that incentivizes those things that revolutionize the means of production. But there's this other element of late-stage capitalism or monopoly capitalism or what Lenin called imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, which it has these degenerative, parasitic, and destructive elements, 
which are now baked into the system. So whatever you get from competition in the one hand, in terms of incentive and innovation, it's taken away with the other hand based on the destructive powers and the growing, increasing impact of militarism and military spending, which are the hallmarks of the system. And it's more than taken away because the detriments are more than taken away than from the benefits because so, so many never had access to any of the benefits anyway. You might have that innovation in healthcare, for example, but the majority of people can't access in this country, can't access any of the innovation in healthcare. So all the, the current stage of capitalism is doing is creating an incredible system for a few, and as everyone knows, a horrendous system for the rest of us. And just picking up on, on that example, I mean, think about how much more innovation there would be in healthcare, how many more discoveries and inventions would be made if all of the people involved in research and development on the military side of things, which is absolutely enormous in the United States, were instead redeployed to healthcare or saving the environment or creating new sustainable housing or, or towards addressing any of the many, many dire social problems that exist. It's a tremendous waste of the intellectual capacity of human beings. And the other dimension to that is think about how many people are essentially not permitted or locked out of that process of scientific discovery and innovation by virtue of extreme inequality in education. I mean, it's just a really, it's a pretty small sliver of humanity that gets access to the type of educational opportunities that you need to become a scientist or a doctor or an engineer and contribute to these things. I mean, in a socialist society, every single person as a basic right would have access to all of those things. And so the creative capacity of humanity is unlocked by a planned economy, a socialist society that guarantees these things as basic rights. If anyone wants to learn more about this subject, meaning how militarism as an essential now foundational part of imperialism and late stage capitalism is in fact retarding the development of the productive forces, holding them back, you know, redirecting resources towards waste rather than something meaningful, I would recommend that you find out about a couple books. They're written by Professor Seymour Melman. Professor Melman died in 2004. He was a very important, you know, critic of militarism and capitalism. He wrote The Permanent War Economy, American Capitalism in Decline, After Capitalism, Profits Without Production. These are all works by Seymour Melman, not a Marxist. But his research on militarism and in particular on U.S. militarism after World War II, very, very useful in terms of getting a perspective on this issue. Again, Melman is not a Marxist. That means as the socialist program and we as Marxists, we might not agree with him on all things. Undoubtedly, we don't. But his books were a real contribution. I want to go on to another story. We're almost at the end of our time Big election in France, Walter, the right wing, the far right lost, but the far right is very much now a part of the, quote, mainstream in France. Yeah, that's right, Brian. I mean, I think a lot of people are relieved that Marine Le Pen, the leader of the far right National Rally Party, formerly the National Front Party, did not win the election. But when you step back and look at these long term trends, I think it's very, very 
disturbing. I mean, one way to look at it is to compare Marine Le Pen's result this time around from the last election in 2017. She essentially cut Macron's margin of victory in half, about 33% to 66% last time. This time around, it's roughly 42% to 58%. So still a convincing margin of victory for Macron, but, but only half of what he got the last time around. And if you step back even further, I mean, it's even starker. In 2002, Marine Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, made it into the second round of the French presidential election, the the first time that the far right ever did this. And Jean-Marie Le Pen was even more of a fascist than Marine Le Pen. He's a Holocaust denier, for instance. And he received about 19% of the vote in the second round. Essentially, you know, the whole of French society united to block the fascists. But fast forward 20 years, And that phenomenon, while still in existence, the so-called Republican Front, sometimes it's called in France, is still in existence, but in a much, much weakened state. And I think the fault for that lies solely at the feet of Emmanuel Macron and the politicians like him in France that have adopted this neoliberal style of government that's intent on gradually taking, well, maybe not so gradually, taking away the rights of working class people in France shredding the social safety net, increasing the power of corporations and big business, and pursuing an imperialist foreign policy. And so I think that the motivation that a lot of people in France who maybe under other circumstances would have, you know, gladly voted for anyone but Marine Le Pen is really blunted by just how horrible Macron's neoliberal government has been and how discredited the entire French political establishment has become. Macron began his career in the Socialist Party of France, which is sort of a moderate center-left party. And then he created his own movement, Republic on the Move, essentially. The traditional dominant parties have now essentially vanished from the French political scene. The Socialist Party received about 2% of the vote in the presidential election. 2%, right? And this was the party that governed the country as recently as 2017. And the mainstream conservative political party also got a single-digit result. And so you have this situation where Macron, even though he gets 58% of the vote, is actually widely hated in society along with the establishment that he represents. And so people are turning to either the far-right fascistic forces represented by Marine Le Pen or, on a more hopeful note, towards the left. The left-wing candidate, Melanchon, came very, very close to making it into the second round, which would mean that Le Pen wouldn't have even been competing last Sunday. And that trend may continue to grow as well, but the future is very uncertain and it does not look bright for the French bourgeois establishment. The French left was not did not have a unified candidate. I mean, if the French left had a unified candidate, Melanchon may well have beaten Le Pen in the run-up and then been the the main opponent of Macron, no? Yeah, that's right. In in fact, if any one of the other left-wing candidates, of which there were several, uh, if their vote share transferred to Melanchon, he would have made it into the second round. He would have made this historic breakthrough. So, I mean, there is really kind of a tragic element there. You know, if the Communist Party, the Green Party, the Socialist Party, if any of those candidates had dropped out and supported Melanchon, in all likelihood, he would have made it into the second round and not Le Pen. All right, let's go on. Um, let's talk about Elon Musk. Musk, we talk about Elon Musk. Elon Musk made it extremely clear he was ready to buy Twitter. 
He says he's a free speech absolutist. So if he succeeds, maybe Donald Trump will have his account restored. But, you know, at first Twitter said no. They rebuffed his offer. But then everything changed when Elon Musk could come back and say, look, I have arranged $46 billion in additional financing from banks or perhaps banks and private equity firms. Here we have an example of how a small, tiny, tiny, tiny group of human beings who constitute a fraction of the capitalist class in the United States and an even smaller part of the population writ large are able to determine the fate of something like Twitter, which is used by so many millions of people. And you could say Twitter or other social media. I mean, these are all capitalist corporations. Their goal is profit. They're working with the capitalist state. Obviously, Twitter should become a public utility, not the property of private capitalists. But it says so much about the way American capitalism works and about what democracy really is. The billionaire class decides what something like Twitter will look like, what its rules are. They make the decisions, not the people. Yeah, the idea that this is considered to be a form of freedom, free speech, I mean, it's just the the height of absurdity. You know, capitalists care a lot about public opinion. They're very politically savvy. They don't mind doing things that are horrible, but of course they want to be well-liked. And I think that, you know, Elon Musk to purchase Twitter follows essentially the same logic as Jeff Bezos purchasing the Washington Post. Um, They want to be able to influence, to shape public opinion, which, as you pointed out, of course, has a hugely distorting impact on, you know, so-called democracy in a capitalist society, because the information that people are exposed to determines what you think about the world. I mean, how could it be any other way? So the purchase of Twitter by Elon Musk, I think, is, is something that imperils, you know, what little room for democratic expression still exists under this system. And yeah, you're right. I mean, it could be used to resuscitate or, you know, give a further boost to the political fortunes of Donald Trump. You know, the two of them must know how to get in touch with each other. I mean, it's the ruling class. It's a small club. Right. And I think what's important about what you two are flushing out here is that the conversation, quote unquote, in the mainstream media is essentially been around whether there should be more restrictions, like that Twitter should impose more restrictions on users of Twitter or less. And so the analysis of Elon Musk buying Twitter is he will have less restrictions, fewer restrictions on what people can say on Twitter. But that's not really the most important issue here. The most important issue here is, as you both have said, the fact that this billionaire can unsolicited 10 days ago, 11 days ago, 12 days ago, put out a proposal to Twitter to buy it. You know, this huge institution that so many people actually do rely on for news and updates. And not only be taken seriously, but put together financing from the investment bank Morgan Stanley, including $13 billion in debt financing, plus another $12.5 billion in loans against his stock in his own company, Tesla, and then that he just has $21 billion in cash to use to purchase this platform that so many millions of people use. I mean, that's the real free speech question. I mean, it's essentially, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, it's an indication of how late stage this capitalism is, that there's somebody, an individual, who can buy this, this platform. 
Vladimir Lenin, the leader of the Bolshevik Party, the primary leader of the Russian Revolution, said in 1917, for the bourgeoisie, freedom of the press meant freedom for the rich to publish and for the capitalists to control the newspapers, a practice which in all countries, including even the freest, produced a corrupt press. Anyway, Lenin spoke well, Walter. We agree with him. In essence, yes, we do have the free press. We do have the socialist program, for instance. Again, we need the support of our patrons to allow this show to keep going. But the mainstream media is owned by the capitalist corporations, just a handful of them. And they get to determine what to publish and what to say. And they control not only the old media, but the new media, the social media. And as a consequence, when you look at a war situation like the war in Ukraine, a complex story, but it's a very simplified story, spoon-fed to the masses of people in this country by the opinion molders, the ruling class itself, who want to make sure that the people of this country don't really understand how the war happened and what the path to peace is, and instead simply put their hands on their heart, say the Pledge of Allegiance, salute the flag, sing the Star Spangled Banner, and get in line to support the war making and the war profiteers. Anyway, Walter, let's end with the big stories from Liberation News. Thanks, Brian. I want to highlight first an article that we published on Liberation News for Earth Day. It's titled Biden and U.S. Capitalism's Broken Climate Promises. It's extremely important, I think, for us to keep in mind what Biden promised, what he said on the campaign trail and in his first days in office, and how miserably that compares with his administration's actual record in power. Another piece that I wanted to recommend comes from Breaking the Chains magazine, actually. We're republishing it on Liberation News, but I think it's extremely important to follow this story. It's titled Stop the Execution of Melissa Lucio, an Innocent Woman and Survivor. You can find out about the state of Texas's attempt to execute Melissa Lucio and the struggle to prevent that from happening. You can also check out everything from Breaking the Chains at breakingthechainsmag.org. And finally, I want to highlight an article titled Support Immigrant Hunger Strike at Georgia Prison at the Folkestone Ice Processing Center. Inmates are on hunger strike and there are activists on the outside organizing alongside them. This is a dynamic, constantly developing struggle that's taking place and growing in Georgia. You can check out some of the latest details on Liberation News and check back frequently for updates on these and many other stories. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Tomorrow we'll be joined by economist Richard Wolf. On Wednesday, we're going to continue our conversation about one dimension of the Ukraine war. Vladimir Putin said on February 21st and February 24th that he had significant differences of opinion with Vladimir Lenin and the Bolshevik policy towards non-Russian nationalities after the Russian Revolution. We're going to be joined by Eugene Perrier and have a more extensive discussion about what the socialist or communist or Bolshevik policy was towards the nationalities in the Soviet Union. So be sure to join us for that show. It'll be broadcast first as a YouTube video on Breakthrough News at 7 p.m. Eastern, that's Wednesday night, and then on all streaming services as a podcast Thursday morning, as always, 8 a.m. Thursday morning. Again, for those who like the show, rely on the show, think the show is good, 
Become a subscriber. Do your part to help us keep producing high-quality, independent programming. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.